Now, if you will, uh, take out your device or your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. And that's going to be our text. And our topic this morning is what you can expect this year. We're going to get into that in just a few minutes. Well, let's stand together. And uh, just one thing I want to mention, um, Charlie Tires uh, was here earlier this morning, and he's gone home. I'm not sure what the... uh, uh, issues are, but we're going to pray for him in just a moment. Um, so this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to uh, 15, or 10 to 15, sorry, 10 to 15. I am reading blue, and you are reading white, and this is what it says, according, this is Paul speaking, of course, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building up on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Beautiful. Let's pray together. Father, we again give you thanks and praise for your love and for your mercy and for your grace and for your goodness. Uh, Father, we're not quite sure what's going on with Charlie today, uh, but you do. And uh, we ask right now that that shield over him and around about him would be a reality and that you would watch for him and watch over him. And uh, Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy in this area. Now we ask that you would give us by your grace, that you would give us ears to hear, mouths to speak, hearts to understand, and minds to comprehend. Lord, as we look into your word, especially as we go out this week and this year into our communities, into our neighborhoods, our homes, places where we work and where we get our education and where we buy and get our services, and that we would live out what it means to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And this we would do in practical and meaningful ways. And we ask all of this, of course, in one name only, and for his name's sake and for his glory, Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. Why don't you be seated? Now, I am aware that we did miss a couple of verses in our text, but we're not going to worry about that. Uh, We'll get to that in a moment. Now, it's interesting because in some ways, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, may seem uh, like an unusual text to begin a new year. But in other ways, it is the perfect text to begin a new year because it deals with a found fundamental reality, and that is accountability. Or to put it another way, is a day of reckoning. Now that sounds incredibly ominous. Judgment day. A day when you and I, each of us, every one of us, are going to have to give an account to God. Now, people come to me occasionally and they ask me about 
the nature of the judgment, of what this accounting, this day of reckoning is actually going to look like. And so their question is, will Christians, will we as believers, Christ followers, will we be judged? And if so, what will our judgment look like? And sometimes those questions come out of places of deep concern and for some even fear. And it seems at best we're somewhat fearful, or sorry, at worst, we are fearful about judgment. And at best, we're worried about it. We're concerned about it. Now, our text that we just read, of course, addresses some of our questions and some of our concerns and some of our worries and some of our fears. And so let's begin talking, first of all, about what I refer to and we'll refer to as the big picture. Now, what do we mean by the big picture? What we mean by the big picture is that there are, as I understand it, there are eight different kinds of judgment in the Bible. There is, first of all, the judgment of the cross, and then there is the judgment of ourselves, and then there's the judgment of believers, what is referred to as the Bema Seat of Christ, and that's the one we're going to focus on this morning And then there is, uh, at the end of time, will be the judgment of the tribulation saints, and there will be a judgment of Israel. Uh, There will be a judgment after the end of the thousand years of peace, and then, of course, there will be what is referred to as the great white throne judgment. And then finally, there will be the judgment of angels. Now, we are going to focus on the smaller picture, and the smaller picture, as I said, is the third one, which is really the judgment of believers. Now, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is due for what he or she has done in the body, whether good or evil. And again, in Romans, it says each one of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. And this accounting, this day of reckoning, is the final evaluation of our works as Christ followers, as believers. This will be unique to us. To you and to me, it is where and when we will stand before Christ and we will give an account of ourselves to God. Now, what I'm going to say next is very important, and I want you to hear it, because it will remove some of your anxiousness that our judgments, our judgment rather, as Christians focuses on service, on acts of service, of on good works. It is not a punitive judgment that is involved here. It's not punitive. Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me as eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And so the issue at our accounting, at our judgment, is not our sin. Our sin has been judged on the cross. 
Our sin has been judged through and in Jesus Christ. Our issue at accounting time will not be sin. Sin has been covered. It's been covered. I remember as a kid growing up and um, uh, preachers used to scare us with the idea that when we get to heaven, there is going to be this big video screen. And all of our sins are going to be there, showed on this big video screens for all the people that are gathered there to see. Well, that's not the case. That's not the issue for us. The issue for us at our accounting, at our day of reckoning, is going to be acts of service or good works. Suddenly, it's your turn. The judge beckons. Every eye is fixed on you as you climb the steps to the platform. When you reach the top, you look around at the throng of people that are there. They're all there, family and friends, acquaintances, people to whom you shared the story, people that you influenced for Christ, that you mentored, that you discipled. That little girl that was lost and you helped her find her way to her parents. You forgot about that. And there are others. There's John Calvin and there's Luther. And there's Paul and Peter and there's David and there's Daniel. And oh yeah, there's that guy that you helped fix a flat tire one day. And there's the lady who you actually slipped 50 bucks to at one point. Oh, yeah, and you forgot about her as well. And then there is that elderly couple who, as a teenager, you shoveled their driveway. There's that family to whom you brought a meal. Oh, and there is your Sunday school class. Billions watching. And not a single bad seat. Then you turn... And you reluctantly look into his eyes because you are required to. His eyes are simultaneously stern and kind, compassionate and utterly true. Your heart pounds, but you're not afraid. You have no fear because he loves you. What will he say? For everyone, the judgment has been unique. He's spoken kindly, but grandly. How could he say so much and never repeat himself? How could he show so many seemingly inconsequential deeds to be so wonderful? And why is he doing this for me? I didn't do anything. Not like the martyrs, not like Luther, not like Paul, not like... But he thinks otherwise. What the historians recorded is meaningless now. What counts is what he knows 
and he remembers. And he sets every deed in its true light. But what is he going to say about me? Hush. He holds up his hand. He stands. He looks into your eyes one more time. And he speaks. Christ will evaluate the extent to which we as his followers have invested the resources, time, talent, treasures, etc., that have been given to us by God. So let me use a couple of cliches, if I can, to clear up a couple of things in case you're unclear. First of all, that we work from salvation, not for our salvation. In other words, that our good works, our acts of service, follow salvation. Secondly, we are saved to serve. We do not serve in order to be saved. And thirdly, salvation is the free gift of God that has to be received. It cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. It is undeserved. It is honored. Did you know that there are a, about a hundred biblical texts that talk about works of service for reward? Climaxed by Jesus' last reminder in the last chapter of the last book where he says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he or she has done. So if there are about a hundred texts in the Bible that talk about acts of service that bring about reward, then I think it's probably wise for us to talk about it a little. So what is the nature of these works. Exactly what constitutes good works or acts of service from a biblical standpoint? Well, first of all, it must be built on the right foundation. And Paul tells us in verse 11 that that right foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, not all good works are necessarily God's work that all human beings, no matter whether we are Christian or non-Christian, are capable of doing nice things, of capable of doing good things, is what Shakespeare called the milk of human kindness. But here's how we are going to define a good work. A good work is God's work done in Christ's name for God's glory. Now, the second thing is that we must use the right materials. If anyone builds, Paul says, on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Now, Paul is describing two different kinds of building materials, combustible and non-combustible. The last three, wood, 
hay and straw, or rather, yeah, wood, hay, and straw, they are combustible. The first three, gold, silver, and precious stones, are non-combustible. Now, six words or six symbols in a descending scale, six different kinds of building materials. We're not told specifically what they mean or what they represent exactly, but the two lists are set in contrast, juxtaposed to each other. These are things done in this life, whether good or bad, lost or lasting. Wood, hay, and straw are symbols or pictures of works that is bad materials in the sense that they are worthless. They are ephemeral. They are temporary. They are fleeting. They are passing. They are brief. They will not last. And gold, silver, and precious stones are symbols and pictures of good building materials in the sense that they are fireproof, that they will last. So what do these good works, what do these acts of service of gold, silver, and precious stones look like now? What do they look like today? What do they look like currently? Well, I could give you a list as long as my arm and more, but I think our best example always is Jesus. And Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says these words, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around and about doing good works. And Jesus said himself in John chapter 10, verse 32, he says, I have shown you many good works from my Father. So what good works did Jesus mean? Well, I think that if we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and when we're reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we ask this question, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? I think a good summary would be Matthew chapter 25, where it says, And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. John Wesley's motto was, do all the good you can in all the ways you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. And then the third thing has to do with right motive. Now, in some ways, this is the most difficult to ascertain. Because there are only two people in the world that can determine my motive. There's only two people in the world that can determine your motives. And that is me and God. Or you and God. Nobody else. 
And sometimes only God can determine our motives because when it comes to motives, sometimes we as human beings, we get a little confused and mixed up and our motives, we become sort of convoluted. So only God sometimes can really know our motive because we know, right? We all know that we all do things for show. We all do things for the wrong reasons, sometimes to, as an attempt to get approval or acceptance or whatever it may be, but only God really knows my heart. Only God really knows your heart. And then there's this, what somebody else cleverly called the fires of heaven. Paul says that each one's work will become manifest For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. Our works, our acts of service are going to be tested by the fires of heaven. So the question remains, will my acts of service, my good deeds, be combustible? or non-combustible. But while you're thinking about that question, there's a very important thing to understand in this full text. And I want to draw your attention to it in verse 14 and 15, and this is what it says. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he or she will receive a reward. On the opposite side, verse 15 says that if anybody's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But listen to this now, and this is important. Though he himself or herself will be saved. The point is that at the judgment of believers, as I said before, it's not about our sin. That's been covered. That's been dealt with forever, for time, and eternity. There will never be a sin that will be brought up about us as believers in judgment because it's been judged at the cross. And even if everything that we have been given is wood, hay, and straw, and it gets burned up, the Bible tells us that once we get to heaven, we're there. We will not be turned away. He or she himself will be saved, but only as fire. And that brings us to this. Three actions that need to be taken in light of the combustibility or the non-combustibility of our actions, of our good works. The first one is that we need to watch ourselves. Thomas Jefferson once cleverly said that the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And John said it even better He said, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And the second thing we need to do, the second action that we need to take is to watch our doctrine. Pay attention to what we believe, what we hold to be true. Now, The word doctrine these days has got some negative 
connotations. Doctrine or dogma seems to be something that is rigid or narrow or closed-minded. But doctrine is not that at all. Being doctrinal is not that at all. First of all, doctrine is our faith position. It is not something that can be proven scientifically or even something that can be observed. It is something that I believe. It is something that you believe. It is something that we hold to be true. Doctrine is something as well that we commit ourselves to. We bet eternity on We build our lives on it. And then thirdly, doctrine is something that we contend for. It is something we insist on. We push. We contend with other people for Now, I want you to know that Christians are not the only ones who are doctrinal. What I've discovered is that everyone, Christians or non-Christians, sometimes particularly non-Christians, are just as doctrinal as are Christians. We are all doctrinal. Tim Keller gives a great example, and I've stolen this from him. Mr. Green is a Christian, and Mr. Blue is not. And Mr. Green one day sits down with his friend, Mr. Blue, and he says to him, Mr. Blue, I wish that I could, that I could convince you that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and that you would believe and accept him as such. And Mr. Blue says to Mr. Green, nobody can know anything definite about God. And secondly, you should not try and persuade other people to see things your way. That's not right. Now, when Mr. Blue says we cannot know anything definite about God, what is that? That's doctrinal. That's a faith position. It's not scientific. It's a belief. And when he says, you should not try to convince other people to take your spiritual reality as the right one, at that moment, Mr. Blue is saying to Mr. Green, you ought to see it my way. In other words, he is saying, I have a relativistic take on spiritual reality, and you ought to receive it. From me as such. And he is doing the very thing that he is saying not to do while he himself is doing it. Did you follow that? Both Mr. Green, who was a Christian, and Mr. Blue, who is not a Christian, are being doctrinal. They have a faith position. And they have bet eternity on it and they have built their lives on it and they are both contending for it but here's the difference Mr. Green is being openly doctrinal he's being honest about his doctrine 
But Mr. Blue is not. Mr. Blue is in denial. Mr. Blue has bet his eternity on the idea that we cannot know anything definite about God. Here's the point. Everybody has faith assumptions about God, eternity, human nature, moral truth, etc., etc., etc. Last week, I mentioned one of my favorite poets, and I'm sorry I got to do this to you, but Mary Oliver wrote this poem called, I Wake Close to the Morning. She says, why do people keep asking for God's identity papers? It's a pretty good line, right? When the darkness opening into morning is more than enough. Certainly any God might turn away in disgust. Think of Sheba approaching the kingdom of Solomon. Do you think she had to ask, is this the place? Back to our point. There's no way to avoid being doctrinal. Everyone is doctrinal. It's our faith position. We have built our lives on it. We are betting our eternity on it. And we insist on it. But there's also this, that doctrine distinguishes us. Our doctrine, what we believe and hold to be true, is important because it influences our values. And our values determine our lifestyle. It is the why behind who we are and how we live. Paul says to Timothy, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, or the word is doctrine. So, if we believe that our text is true of what it says, and that one day there's going to be a day of accounting, that we are going to have to stand before Christ and give an account to God for our acts of service or for our good works, then I think it's important that we need to also watch our life. And that brings me now to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, verse 36, verse 38, these are, uh, this is a text for me, personally, that has become very meaningful over the last month. And I think it's important for us at the congregation, listen to what it said. Uh, Be merciful, and Jesus says, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Five things. Be merciful. Judge not. Condemn not. Forgive and give. 
Now, I think these are important words. And I think these are words of life. As we are looking ahead to the coming year. And as we look ahead to the coming year, first of all, I want to remind us of the three pillars on which we build our mission, vision, and core values. And they are these. First of all, we want to continue to focus on being a missional congregation. Now, what I mean by missional is this, that we need to continue to reach. Being missional is about reaching. Sometimes it's as simple as reaching across the table or reaching across the aisle or reaching across the street or reaching to our neighbors or our family members or our community or our city or our country and even reaching to our world. And that's why I believe these five things are so important. Being merciful, judge not, condemn not, forgive and give. That we must continue to practice these. If we are going to be a presence for Christ in our community, it matters and it matters for Christ's sake and it matters for the kingdom of God. We want to be about discipleship. One of the things that we want to do is we want to make sure, I love what they, what they said in the video, that Carrie said in the video, that we want to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we're trying to do that through education to what we do on Sundays, what we do in life groups. But one of the parts of discipleship, ladies and gentlemen, is being involved, volunteerism. Now, put your seatbelt on. You're not going to like this. But look around the room. Look at the army of volunteers in this room. And how many of us don't do a single thing for the kingdom of God? And so this year, we're going to be asking you to get involved, and we're expecting your default answer to be yes. Can I put it roughly? It's time to get off our duff. This is not a participation, sorry, this is not a spectator sport. This is about participation. So get up. Because one of these days, you're going to have to give an account. And I look at the pool of wisdom and experience and talent and resources before me and online, and I think to myself, do we really believe what the Bible says? Folks, I'm going to answer to God. And so are you. Let me go on before you yell at me. Next generation. We are delighted to tell you that uh, Pastor Derek will be back to work tomorrow. He had his last treatment on, yes, 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 yes. Him and uh, Brittany are uh, in Toronto. They went to the Leafs game last night. They must have yelled really loud because the Leafs won five to nothing. <clears throat> I guess the day of miracles is not over yet. Um, but they are celebrating. He's coming back to work tomorrow. He had his last treatment on December the 13th. We were there when he rang the bell. And as far as we know, and this is his story to tell, and I haven't asked his permission to tell this, but as far as we know, that he is, diagnosis is that he is clear. Praise the Lord. 
about Pastor Sherry. <clears throat> One of the things that we are anxious about is getting Pastor Sherry into uh, family ministries. We're excited, anxious, and wanting to invest in families, in parents, in, in marriages, in children. And uh, we are desperately looking to find a children's pastor. I can tell you that we had three Uh, As late as just before Christmas, we thought we had a candidate that was a viable candidate, was a great choice, and she didn't want to come. I don't know. They just don't want to come to Sudbury. I don't know what it is. Do you understand that at all? Crazy people. They don't know us, do they? But I've been praying about this, and I must confess to you that I find this incredibly frustrating. I have never been in a situation before where it's been so hard to find a staff member. And we need a children's pastor. So here's the deal. So yesterday morning, I woke up at 5 o'clock, and I had a bunch of stuff going on, and I was alone, and I was drinking a cup of coffee, and I was talking to God, and I was complaining to God, and I was doing all, you know, what you do. And uh, <clears throat> the Lord led me to this text. And Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. But the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest field. So this is the prayer that I started praying yesterday. I want you to close your eyes for a moment, and we'll come back, and I'll tell you what else is going on, and we'll move quickly. Father God, you are the Lord of the harvest. And there is a great harvest to be had here in Sudbury in the area of next generation. We ask you in Christ's name and for his name's sake that you will send us a laborer in the form of a pastor to our children to help us with your harvest. We ask expectantly through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. You can open your eyes. But where are we going biblically, teaching-wise? Well, first of all, is that um, we are in a couple of weeks. I'm going to take a couple of Sundays off. In a couple of weeks, um, we're going to start with the book of Jude. We're going to do four sermons out of there. And then following that, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, and we're going to do 12 sermons. You say, but there's only 10. Yeah, but there's an introduction and a conclusion that we need to do. In between there, we'll do Easter, <clears throat> and uh, then... Uh, Coming out of Easter, we'll finish the Ten Commandments, and then we're in the summer, we're going to look at the seven churches of Revelation, which will be interesting and scary all at the same time. Um, And then, of course, um, we'll come back in the fall, and this is what I'm really excited about. In the fall, we're going to focus on the story. Now, the story is is what we're, uh, is, uh, it's 31 weeks, and one of the things that I'm discovering is this. That at worst, uh, there is a problem with biblical illiteracy in the world and even in the church, in Christians. But at best, there's also many Christians who do not understand the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and why it is the way it is. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the story. Starting in September, and what we're doing is um, all, when, we, uh, when we start in September, all of the children's ministry, the youth ministry, uh, the young adult ministry, and we're hoping every life group, that the week, whatever we focus on on Sunday, that our entire congregation will be focusing on that same text for that week. 
And um, so what we want to do is uh, we've got, we've got um, a curriculum for Life Group. Uh, we've got videos for Life Group, all those kinds of things. Um, and uh, so uh, we just want to do that. And then uh, we also have some resources. So for you that have children and grandchildren that are preschool, uh, we will be for providing for you. Uh, you'll be able to purchase a book where you'll be able to actually read the stories to your children during the week. Uh, if you have uh, elementary school levels, we have, uh, uh, we have uh, books for them at their learning level. The same goes with junior high, senior high, young adults, and adults. And uh, we'll be introducing that uh, coming in the summer, uh, but that'll take us through to the end of the year. Uh, we'll break for Christmas, and then we'll begin the new year in 2020, and we'll finish up the story. But for 31 weeks, we want the whole church to be on track, and we want to focus on the story of God as we understand it from Genesis to Revelation. By the way, the other thing that I didn't mention is that we need to absolutely make sure we need to invest in life groups. It is really time for Glad Tidings Church, their waning and we need people who are want to lead life groups we need people who want to host them and um, we are really believing that we need to get back into our small groups so we can learn together grow together be discipled together and become followers of Jesus Christ together and so life groups uh, you can sign up today next week there'll be the full sign up but there's a uh, thing in the um uh, in the foyer. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you this, that in a group this size, there's no way we can grow only by what happens on Sunday morning. We need to be in smaller groups. So get into a life group, lead a life group, host a life group. Let's get a life.com. Amen? And the last thing we need to talk about is mortgage. And I'm always reluctant to talk about it. this is the year that our mortgage is renewed. The last time we did this four years ago, we paid off $350,000. And of course, that brought our, um, we uh, came and I think every month we saved around $14,000. Uh, we're under $2 million, and so this year is a chance that we can take an offering uh, in July, around June, July, wherever that's going to be. We haven't identified that, but a special offering for our mortgage. Now, I want to say that, but I also want to say this. Um, we need to hold intention, the fact that we need to uh, do something about our mortgage because this is, we can pay off as much of our mortgage that we can raise, but at the same time, we still have to keep the thing going, the machine going. And there's not much point if we put all of our money into a mortgage and we don't have enough money to turn the lights on. Uh, so we got to hold that all intention, right? All of that. So that's kind of where we're going. And of course, uh, you need to know that um, we are just trying to do what God is leading us to do in the best way that we know how.